Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Right now, we are in the midst of a series on Fridays with James Jordan, discussing a biblical and Bible-based worldview, and here he's in the midst of a sub-series talking about the temptations of Jesus. Here he's going to be talking about temptation throughout the scriptures before he gets back to the temptations of Christ specifically. As always, do check out those links in the show notes. We have some upcoming events here in Birmingham in March, an intensive course and a regional course. We've also just announced our Theopolitan Ministry Conference in the month of July here in Birmingham. Some of those speakers will be Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, Trevor Lawrence, and others. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing temptation in the scriptures. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us without your word. In fact, we praise you that you have counted us friends and told us everything that we need to know. We confess that you have asked us to give you counsel concerning what we need, and we tell you, Father, this morning that we need your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to quicken our tongues and hearts to worship you. Otherwise, Father, we would be cold and still. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, before whom we bow. Amen. We are in the general topic of the temptations of Christ, and in order to understand those temptations, we've been looking at other parts of the Bible to understand uh, the general nature of the temptation of Adam. After all, when Christ is anointed as the king and priest of Israel and taken out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, what he's doing is facing up to the same basic temptation that Adam faced and succeeding in renouncing the devil where Adam uh, decided to side with the devil. And so in order for us to understand the temptations of Christ, we need to understand the temptations that came to Adam in the beginning, Christ being the second Adam. And in order to help us do that, we need to look at the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis is not a series of interesting stories strung together in order to give us a history of the world from creation to Mount Sinai. Rather, the book of Genesis is a theological document. It is, as is every scripture, a prophecy. The things contained in the book of Genesis constitute a series of sermons or lessons designed to teach us about God and how he acts and how we are to act under his authority. Therefore, the book of Genesis is united in its conception, and it has certain basic themes that repeat throughout. And one of those themes is creation, temptation, and fall. And on the other side of that, regeneration. Now, we have seen in the last couple of weeks the temptation of Adam. And the basic nature of Adam's temptation was not a temptation simply to disobey God, but Uh, It arose from the very nature of the world that God had made. God had put man in time and created him morally good, with knowledge of good and evil in a moral sense. But God had created man naked, that is, an infant who did not yet have any clothes of glory and honor. And man could look at God and see how God was clothed in glory and honor and could see from that what he would eventually become. And man, being made in the image of God, was to grow and mature to the point where he was more in the image of God than he originally was created to be. So when, when man was created, God said, let us make man in our likeness. And yet when Satan comes, he says, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. Now what kind of a temptation is that? Well, we saw it was because having been made in the moral likeness of God, man was to progress through wisdom and knowledge until he came to be in the judicial likeness of God. And that's what the robe is in Scripture. It's the robe of glory, honor, and particularly of judicial office. That's what Adam and Eve didn't have. They were naked. Being naked is not a sign of being sinless. Being naked is a sign of being newly born. Adam and Eve would have come to wear clothing as a sign of their office, not as a covering for their sin. That's why... You know, just because we are redeemed and renewed in Christ, we don't all go around naked. 
there have been groups and sects throughout the history of the church that have thought, well, since we're saved and we're not sinners anymore, we should go around naked like Adam and Eve did because clothing is to cover sin, and being naked, that means you don't have sin. But that's not true. That's not what clothing is for, and that's not what nakedness means. Nakedness means you're newly born and you haven't yet matured to the point where you wear the robe of office. Unfortunately, in our churches uh, in America, clergymen don't wear robes, and so people aren't used to robes as a sign of office and function unless they go to court. There, of course, uh, the priests of the state wear robes, and if they go on a campus at the university, the priests of the university wear robes, but those who administer the sacraments, except in our church and uh, churches with more of a tradition, uh, don't wear robes as a sign of their office. But that is what robes are in the Bible, and robes are important in Genesis. Robes pay a particularly important part at the end of the book of Genesis, where Joseph is robed three times, and we'll eventually get there. And Of course, I'm repeating myself here from last week. Now... Adam was tempted to seize this robe of authority before he had acquired wisdom. God had said, look, I'm giving you a definition. You are man, you are made in my image and in my likeness, and you are immature. I want you to grow in maturity, and then when you are ready, I will invest you with the robe. You will be passive, and I will put the robe on your shoulders. You will stand there naked, and I will clothe you with the garment of judicial authority. <clears throat> and when you have that robe on you, then you'll be able to deal with this serpent here that I have placed in the garden in order to teach you about these things. But man said, no, I don't want to receive my definition from God. I want to define myself, and I will seize the robe, and then, having defined myself and redefined all of the symbols in God's world, I will exercise judgment apart from wisdom. And so, having taken upon himself the right to judge, God came to Adam and said, all right, judge. You are now the judge. Let's hear it. What have you done? Well, Adam does not judge righteously. He tries to blame his wife. And uh, she says quite properly that she was deceived. The New Testament tells us that Eve was deceived. And so, in case we didn't know it, uh, we know now that Eve is deceived. You don't have to go to the New Testament for that, by the way. Uh, you'll notice that the serpent is cursed in Genesis 3 and that the ground is cursed for man's sake, but there's no curse on the woman because the woman didn't sin. She was deceived. Adam was the one who sinned. She falls with her husband and certain effects of the curse go to her, <clears throat> multiplying pain in childbirth and uh, the rebellion that she'll experience toward her husband and he will rule over her. But the word curse is not made because what she says is true. When she says, the serpent deceived me, that's absolutely true. And Paul tells us that twice in the New Testament. The woman was deceived, but not the man. Adam was standing by the whole time this conversation took place. He could have interrupted at any point, chose not to do so. So it's all his fault. It's the man's fault. That's important to the rest of the book of Genesis, as we will see. Now, Adam has grabbed hold of the robe of judicial authority. He's tried to clothe himself. He's found that deep down inside he's still naked, so he hides in the, in the garden with fig leaves, but God clothes him. Now, we've looked at all of that. We've seen how this repeats in the history of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, how there's a repetition of the fall of man when Ham invades his father's tent without permission, seeking to find something wrong with Noah, and he finds that Noah has taken his robe off, and then he comes and suggests to his brothers that they steal the robe. But the two brothers carry the robe backwards and uphold their father's office and uh, do not see their father's nakedness. So when Noah awakes from his wine, and we saw that it's a question whether there was even anything wrong with what Noah has done here, at the very most we can say is that Noah has committed an indiscretion. We won't repeat that message, though. Noah awakes from his wine and curses Ham. The Bible doesn't say Noah committed some great sin here. It says Ham committed the sin. It doesn't say Ham did some weird, obscure thing. It says Ham did one thing. He sought to take the father's authority. The original sin is the temptation to steal authority. It's the sin of revolution, which is like witchcraft, according to the Bible. Ham has only... Ham's been waiting 150 years or so. He's 150 years old, and he figures it's about time for him to uh, have the robe of authority. And Dad's getting old, and so it's time for me to take charge. So he goes in and grabs the robe. 
but uh, the two other brothers uphold him. Now it's interesting what happens. What's the punishment of Ham? Because Ham wants to steal authority. He wants to seize dominion. He wants to have all the glories and honors now instead of waiting for him. He doesn't want to wait for 40 days. Or in this case, remember 1,657 years, which is 33 jubilees plus 7 years or 40. That is, he doesn't want to wait until God is ready to bestow upon him dominion. He wants to seize it. He wants to be a revolutionary. He's got to have it now. He's not going to wait until he's old enough to afford a Mercedes. He's going to go into debt and get one right now. He's not going to wait until he's got enough money saved up to go to Europe. He's going to borrow and go to Europe now when he's 25 years old. He is going to grab for all the things that are supposed to come at the end of life and try to get them at the beginning of life. That's the sin of Adam. That's the sin of Ham. And what happens to Ham? He who seized at the robe of office and authority becomes a slave of slaves. But the two brothers who upheld their father's office and were submissive, they are the ones whose dominion is enlarged. The, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Very interesting. You know, if God enlarges Japheth and yet Japheth is in the tents of Shem, then how big are the tents of Shem? Big enough to accommodate the enlargement of Japheth, right? So both of the other two faithful brothers are enlarged and have dominion and rule. But Ham loses all of his because of his revolutionary activities. Now that's very interest, valuable insight to those who like to think that they're going to take over the U.S. government for Christ in the near future. I dare say that the new Christian right is ready to mail but not ready to lead. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the history of Abraham and see how these kinds of temptations which started the temptation that came to Adam, the temptation that came to Ham, these same temptations are going to come to Abraham. These are the ones that are going to be brought to Christ later on. That's where we're going. But today we're going to look at the history of Abraham. And um, I'm going to condense a lot of things that I've been saying in the Genesis class for you this morning. Let's look, first of all, at the first attack by the devil against Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This is before Abraham's name was changed. He's still Abram. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Now, we'll start in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Anybody remember another occasion where there was a big famine and people went down into Egypt? Yeah, you remember that. That's what happens later on. And it came about when he came to Egypt that he said to Sarai, my princess, his wife, see now I know that you're uh, a woman of beautiful appearance, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, which is true, she is his sister, so that it may go well with me because of you that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. You remember another occasion later on when the Pharaoh of Egypt decided to kill all the boy babies but to keep the girls alive? Why was he keeping the girls alive? Well, you guessed it. For the same reason as this. I stole all this information from Lou Balkley. He had a sermon on this a while back. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female slaves and female donkeys and camel. camels. That doesn't mean cigarettes now, real camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You remember another occasion when Pharaoh got struck with plagues? You remember another occasion where the descendants of Abraham came out of Egypt with great spoils that they had gotten from the Egyptians? Then Pharaoh called Abraham and said, This is all your fault. What is it that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? I just couldn't help myself. I mean, after all, I mean, there she was beautiful, and I just couldn't help myself but go in and take her for my wife. It's all your fault. You put the sin in my path. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out. You remember another occasion where Pharaoh uh, blamed the servant of God and kept trying to make it out that it was God's people's fault when God was plaguing him? 
So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him to the border with his wife and all that belonged to him. So Abram went up from Egypt into the promised land. Do you remember? Now you notice that how all this happens here is just almost exactly what happens later on in the Bible. Well, this is just the first time. This happens about six times in the book of Genesis. Now let's look at it. According to the commentators, this is not written right. What it should say was, And Abram came into Egypt and lied to Pharaoh. And so God struck Abraham with many plagues. And Abraham lost everything he had. And poor, innocent Pharaoh called Abraham in, and righteous Pharaoh rebuked wicked Abraham and said, Abraham, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? After all, I just couldn't help myself when I saw her and took her into my harem. And so wicked Abraham was driven out with absolutely nothing. That's what really happened, right? Because Abraham was the one who sinned, right? Uh Uh-uh. You remember I told you that it was really important that Eve was not at fault in the fall, that she really was deceived. What happened? Eve was deceived by the serpent. Now what's happening here? Eve is deceiving the serpent. Deception is one of the most important themes in the book of Genesis. How do you deal with the serpent when he comes and manifests himself as a dragon? You deceive him. Now this is just the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, blow for blow, wound for wound, burn for burn, life for life. I think I got them all in there. Maybe I missed one. Deception for deception. There's no sin here on Abram's part. In fact, what Abraham does is the very best thing he could have done to protect Sarai. Why? Because in the ancient world, and this is true in the book of Genesis, and you'll see it, I'll point it out to you in a moment, you never took a woman without checking with her brother first. The brother was the number one protector for the girl. You want to see this, read Genesis 24 this afternoon. When the servant of Abraham goes to get a wife for Isaac, he negotiates for Rebekah. Who does he negotiate with? Rebekah's father, Bethuel? No. He negotiates with her brother, Laban. Bethuel is there. But when it comes time, he gives gifts to the brother, Laban. It's the brother who has to be satisfied. It's the brother who is the protector for the bride, for the, for the girl. In the book of Canticles, my sister, my bride. We don't read Song of Solomon very much, but it's always my sister, my bride. Who was the first person in the entire world who had a sister for a bride? Adam and Eve. They were brother and sister, weren't they? Obviously, they had to be in some sense. My sister, my bride. And the, the brother is the protector. And Pharaoh, according to everything that is in the Bible and every custom of the ancient Near East, would never have gone and taken Sarai without checking with her brother first. And Pharaoh is the big tyrant here by taking the woman without getting permission of the brother. This comes up later on again in chapter 34, where Dinah is seduced by Shechem and her brothers avenger, Simeon and Levi. It comes up again in the history of David, when Tamar is ravished by Amnon and her brother Absalom avenges her. The brother is the protector for the girl. And that's why Abram says, look, if they kill me, you're finished. If, if, if we go in here as husband and wife, these people, there's no fear of God before their eyes. These are tyrants. God has forced us down here. Now we're going to have to be as wise as serpents. And that means deceptive. Wise as serpents means deceptive. If you think it's wrong always to tell a lie, you misinterpreted the Ten Commandments. It's wrong to bear false witness against your neighbor. It's not always wrong to tell a lie. In fact, Rahab the harlot was justified by her lie, and there are many times in the Bible where you deal with the dragon by deceiving him. When they come knocking on your door and they say, Where are the Jews? You tell them, We don't have any Jews here. That's what the Dutch Christians did in the Netherlands. Nazis come to the door. Where are the Jews? You got any Jews here? No, we don't have any Jews here. Jews? What are Jews? All you Jews keep quiet back there. That's that's reality, and that's the way you deal with the serpent. The serpent seduced the woman by deceiving her. 
And the woman gets revenge on the serpent by deceiving him. And in the Bible, it's almost always the woman who deceives. Rahab is a woman. Jael, who destroys Sisera by luring him into his tent, telling him she's going to take care of him, and in poking, crushing his head, she's a woman. Deborah is a woman. The great deceivers in the Bible are women. What does this say in Exodus chapter 1? The Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh and said, Well, Hebrew women spit babies out so fast that we don't even get there in time to kill the boys. That's a lie. And it says God blessed them and increased their households because they lied. Women lied. Two witnesses there. Even their names are recorded. What are the names of the two Hebrew midwives? Shivra and Pua. Two witnesses against the serpent. Deceiving the serpent. And what happens when the serpent gets deceived? Ah! He screams. See? It's all here. Hey, it's all your fault. No, it's not. It's your fault, Pharaoh. But Abram doesn't fight back. Now, that's the theology here. You need to come, come to grips with it if you never have. Being as wise as a serpent means deceiving the dragon. And it's precisely the bride who does so. So Abraham is trying to protect her. If we go in as husband and wife, they're sure to kill me and that'll be the end of you. You're just going to be a, a slave in Pharaoh's harem for the next hundred years, however long people lived back then. But if we go in as brother and sister, then you're safe because Pharaoh will never bother you without coming to me first. And I'm safe because we, we can manage to finesse this until uh, the, the uh, famine is over and we can get out of here. So... All the things that happened in the Exodus happened here. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is plagued, and he is humiliated, and Abram comes out with much spoil. So here is an attack on the bride, same as in Genesis chapter 1. And the method of dealing with the serpent is to deceive him. The Bible gives us four names for the devil. Satan, which means adversary. Devil, which means accuser serpent, which means the deceiver, and the dragon, who is the attacker. Here, Satan comes as the dragon and attacks the bride. He's the, as the serpent, he is deceived, and as the false accuser, the devil, he tries to accuse Abraham and blame it all on him, which is ridiculous if you read it in context. It's amazing how people want to take Pharaoh's side, and God takes Abram's side. So that's the first case of a temptation, and Abraham manages to go through pretty well. Then there's words of wisdom to us if we're going to move into a situation where the U.S. government is even more tyrannical. Freely deceive the government if you can get by with it, and don't worry if they find out about it. Deceive them again. Abram does. Now let's look over at Genesis chapter 14 and take another example of a different kind of temptation or test which Satan brings to Abraham. Actually, it's still Abram. Another temptation or test. Shall we read this whole chapter? Let's see. <clears throat> it came about in the days of Amrahel, Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's Babylon, and Ariok, king of Elisar, and Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations. This is a confederacy of Japhethites and Shemites and non-Canaanite descendants of Ham. And they made war on Bera king of Sodom, and Bersha king of Gomorrah, and Shinam king of Adma, and Shemabur king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And all these came as, valleys, came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Now before we read any further, let me show, show you a couple of things here. Did you notice that Bela is, that Moses has gone through the original records written by Abraham here? and has added in parenthesis, Bela, that is Zoar, and the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea. Why? In fact, through this entire passage, everything is updated. Now, it's not the case that everything in the book of Genesis is updated, but here in this passage, everything is updated. Now, what's going on here is, I want to I tell you a few things about it before we even get into it. God had promised that the Canaanites would become slaves of everybody else, and that's what's already happened. Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma, Zeboim and Bela are Canaanite cities, and they have been enslaved by everybody else. Non-Canaanite, Hamites, Shemites, and Japhethites. That's the beginning of the this is the beginning of the fulfillment of Noah's prophecy, right here in Genesis 14. Then they rebel, which is typical. 
Hamites are always rebelling, and they always lose when they rebel. But there's more to what's going on here, because all the people that rebel and are destroyed by Kedorlaomer and his allies are the very same people that Israel is going to have to fight later on when they come into the land. And when Israel came to the borders of the land, they looked into the land and they said, Good grief, there are all these giants here. There are Zuzim, Zamzamim, Anakim, Rephaim, Emim. You remember all those giants, giant names? We can't take this land. And then they said, Look it, there are... Who are some of the other people? There are Horites here. Now you can look at Numbers uh, 13 this afternoon. You'll find all these people mentioned. We can't take this land. There are Horites here. We can't take this land because there are... Let's see, I mentioned the giants, the Horites. Amalekites here. We can't take this land because there are Amorites here. All of these people are the very ones that Israel was supposed to fight later on. Now, in other words, this passage here becomes a prophecy... It becomes a sermon for the Israelites later on. They should look back here and realize these people are not unconquerable because they've already been conquered once. And if they knew the book of Genesis, they would realize there in Numbers 13, well, these people were conquered once. We can conquer them again. And we don't need to be afraid of them. That's why all this is recorded here. And that's why everything is updated. So that when you get to Numbers 13... The people can read this chapter and they'll understand, well, these are the very same people that were conquered by Chedorlaomer. And Chedorlaomer was conquered by Abraham. So if we're the descendants of Abraham, we don't need to worry about these folks. That's the message. That's why all these details are here. These details are not here because some document was jammed into the book of Genesis and all these details happen to be thrown in. It's very carefully written. Let's just zip through it real quick here. In verse 4 it says, Twelve years they served Kedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Asheroth Karnaim and the Zuzim and Ham and the Emim and Shabbath Kiriathayim. Now those are giants. So you don't need to worry about giants. Giants have already been licked once. Plus, he defeated the Horites and Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness. Not only did he defeat the Horites, but later on Esau defeated them. And if Esau can defeat him, you can defeat him. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. And by the way, that's the same as Kadesh, which is where you are now located in Numbers 13. They were right here in Kadesh, where you are now. And they conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who live in Hazazan Tamar. Now, if they can do it, you can do it. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, which, by the way, is still standing and is now known as Zoar, they came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Kedorlaomer and all the rest. Now, verse 10, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they hid in them, literally. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Now, if this can be done once, it can be done again. That's the message. Now... Here's the cash value. It says in verse 12, they also took Lot. Up till this point, none of it was Abraham's business. But now they took Lot, Abram's nephew and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Uh Uh-oh. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the only place where Abram is called Abram the Hebrew. The reason is, Eber was a descendant of Shem. And here we see the Shemites exercising dominion over the Canaanites, if you'll watch. Now, he was living in the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, which means grapes. And you'll remember that Eshcol is one of the words in Numbers 13. When he went into the land, they called it Eshcol because of all the grapes. All the language here is important. The brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captured, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318. Why 318? And went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is a long way away. We see Abram exercising all kinds of dominion over this land. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, which is a long way away from where Abram was. Abram was way down in Hebron, which is a city of refuge, and he extends this city of refuge all the way up to where he can get Lot and pull Lot back. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. 
And then you have the scene with Melchizedek. Now, what is the temptation that might come across Abram's mind? Hey, Kedor Leomer, he's the king of Babylon. And I've just defeated him and kicked him out of my land. Promised land that God told me I was going to have. The temptation before Abraham is to take the land on his own. Because he has, you see the cash value here is, if Kedor Leomer is powerful enough to defeat all these Canaanites, who's powerful enough to defeat Kedor Leomer? Abram, at least temporarily. And so Satan comes with the big temptation to Abram in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn by Yahweh El Elyon, the Lord who is also known to you as God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. Now, the temptation before Abram is not to wait until God is ready to give him the land, but to take it himself. Abram's faith is patient faith. And the requirement on Abram is that he roam around with his name Abram, which means father, exalted father, even though he's got no children. And then after he has one child, God changes his name to father of a multitude, and he has to roam around with that name, Abraham. Uh for years and years with one child and then with two children and he kicks out one of them he's got one left meanwhile his brother has had 12 children we're told in Genesis 23 and his brother doesn't bear the name Abraham father of a multitude you know a lot of people snickered about old Abraham with that name of course at the end of his life he had a bunch of kids but throughout all this it's patient faith and he doesn't get to have a land actually Abram has got enough power to take dominion over this land at least temporarily uh, but he doesn't do so because God has not told him that the time is right. Now, God doesn't deal with us quite the same way. We, uh, our patience is a little bit harder for us to know when we should be patient and when we should strike. With Abraham, it's very clear, and because it's clear with him, it has messages for us that we can meditate on and learn from. I said that Abram's faith was patient faith. Let's just take a quick glance at Hebrews chapter 6 and get that nailed down. Because patient faith is what we're required to have, too. Patience. Wait, wait, wait. What Adam wouldn't do, what Ham wouldn't do, what the daughters of Lot would not do, we'll see. Hebrews 6.12, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For, this is patient faith, When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you. Literally, uh, swearing in the Bible is is a double form, two witnesses. And in Hebrew, this is blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. That, That construction in Hebrew seems to point to the two witness idea. And thus, having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. And we could go on, but I won't. The idea is, and of course in Hebrews 11, the whole thrust of Hebrews 11 is patient faith. Abram was patient and eventually he inherited. So will you be if you're patient. But being patient means you've got to live under these dragon serpents and you've got to be skillful and deceptive in dealing with them and wait. And there come times when Satan will say, "Uh, all these things will I give you if you bow down and worship me. And you have to say, no, I won't take it from you. I won't take it now. When God is ready, he'll give it to me. I will not have it said that the king of Sodom made me rich. Abraham was tempted to take the land by his own power and to have it now instead of waiting. And he resisted the temptation. Now, in Genesis 16, Abraham seems to make a mistake. I'm going to have to go over this very quick. But let's look at Genesis 16 real quick. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid, Egyptian, Egyptian maid, whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, Yahweh has prevented me from having children. Please go into my maid, and perhaps I will be built up through her. Now, what that means is the maid belongs to Sarah, and the children that she bears are supposed to be Sarah's children and not Hagar's children. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. 
And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, well, she gave the baby to Sarah. And it was baby, Sarah's baby, right? Uh-uh. Rebellion here. Her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, you should have dealt with this, Abram, and you didn't. And what Sarah says here is right. But Abram says, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly. That's a mistranslation. What it really means is Sarai humbled her or put her in her place. And that's all. You don't, you should not see Sarai here as mean or vengeful. But she is reasserting her dominion over this woman who has rebelled. So Sarai put her in her place and she fled from her presence. Now notice how God deals with this rebellion here. The Lord, angel of the Lord, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness and said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where are you going? And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And if you are patient, then I will multiply your descendants, and there will be too many to count. And besides, you're going to name your son Ishmael, and I will be with him. And later on it says the Lord was with Ishmael, and the Lord blessed him. This is because Hagar went and submitted herself back under Sarai's dominion and was patient. So her rebellion, which is basically the temptation that came to Adam to rebel, to try to get things on her own terms, is thwarted. But Hagar here seems to have some type of a faith because she goes back and submits herself to Abram and Sarai. And when her child is born, he is blessed by God. Now, God kind of has a way of dealing with Abram here. It says in verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And then the next verse says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. 86 from 99 is 13. What happens to boys about the age of 13? They enter puberty. And Abram begins to have visions of grandchildren. And maybe he will begin to multiply as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the sea. And then God comes, just as Abraham is getting real excited about that, and says, I'm going to multiply you greatly, and your descendants will be all over the earth. And I'm going to, not, no longer are you going to be Abram, but you're going to be Abraham, that is, father of a multitude. And all your descendants are going to spread out over the entire earth, and you're going to be making this covenant with you and circumcision. And by the way, you can forget about Ishmael, because Sarah's going to have a child. And Abraham says, what? Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. No, says God, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You will call his name Laughter, Isaac. Well, that's a little parenthesis here, but that seems to be what's going on here. God tells Abram, well, you were kind of impatient here, Abe. You shouldn't have gone into Hagar the Egyptian. And I'm going to bless Ishmael for your sake, because I've decided to uh, include him in the, you know, among the elect, though I'm not going to make the covenant, establish the covenant through him. He'll be in the covenant, but it's not going to be established through him. But uh, really the seed's going to come from, from Isaac. Now, what happens next? In this, we're just looking at the, the theme of rebellion and impatience here. Let's look at Lot. Because what happens next that's important to our little thematic study is the history of Lot. Now, Lot, you see, didn't want to wait 400 years for the promised land. And so... Uh, and, and he really had a little bit of trouble submitting to Abraham's leadership. And so his herdsmen got into big fights with Abram's herdsmen. That doesn't happen, you know, unless the leaders are at odds with each other. And so Abram makes Lot this generous offer, and Lot does not despise Abraham, Abram by not taking him up on it, but honors the offer and takes some good land in the circle of the Jordan. And then it says in verse 11 of chapter 13, Lot journeyed eastward. And in the context of the book of Genesis so far, that's not too good because Cain went eastward and Nimrod went eastward. And he separates from Abraham, and that's not too good either, just the way it's written. And then it says, Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And because we don't know it yet, the Bible informs us, the men of Sodom were wicked, exceedingly wicked, and sinners against the Lord. It's piled up in this verse. In case you miss the point, it says, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners exceedingly against the Lord. 
that's the first time we've had Sodom mentioned. And so we're told right at the outset, Lot has made the big mistake. And then we find that Lot is living in Sodom and he gets captured out, but Abram rescues him. And now we find that it's time for Sodom to be destroyed. And so we have an exodus. We've already seen Abraham have an exodus out of Egypt. Let's look at Lot's exodus. Lot has made the mistake of not waiting, not having patient faith. He has real faith, but it's just not patient. So in chapter 19, the two angels come to form two witnesses against the city. And Abram, uh, Lot calls them into the house. In verse 3, it says he prepared a feast for them and baked, what do you know, unleavened bread. And they ate. Now, that doesn't mean anything right here, but later on in the Bible, unleavened bread is a sign of the exodus and cutting off the old world. So when you get it in exodus, it's already happened here. And then God, the two angels, keep grabbing him by the hand and pulling him into the house, and then they grab him by the hand and pull him out of the city, and they have to keep pulling him because he just won't move. And then they say, they offer him salvation and dominion in spite of it all. In verse 17, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Don't stay anywhere in the valley, but go to the mountain, lest you be swept away. In other words, go up there and live where Abraham lives. We find Abraham's living up on the mountain. You can be saved. But Lot says, oh, no, my Lord. Now, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountain, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Let me escape there, isn't it small, that my life may be saved. What happened when the children of Israel came out of Egypt? We don't want to take this promised land. We remember the leeks and the onions and the melons and the garlics and the cucumbers. We want to go back and live in that good old city that we used to live in. Don't take us up into the mountain. Let us go back to the city. Now, that doesn't mean that mountains are good and cities are bad, but in this theological context, the mountain is the mountain of God and the city is the city of wickedness. And Lot is just like the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, you see, when Israel comes out of Egypt, they have this. This has already been written. This is their Bible. They're supposed to know from this not to make Lot's mistake. But God is gracious to Lot and says, okay, I'll just I'll save a little section of Egypt over here, a little section of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can live there. But after Lot goes there, it says in verse 30, he was afraid to stay in Zoar. People probably were suspicious of him. How did you manage to get out when everybody else died? Did you plant the atom bomb? So he goes and lives in a cave. Now, later on, we'll see caves are where you bury people. And Abram spends a whole chapter getting a cave to bury Sarah in, and himself. And it says in Genesis 3, Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. And when Lot is living in a cave, he's inserting himself back into the ground. He's gone from bad to worse to worse. And he's actually moving into the zone of death when he lives in the cave. See, you could live in the mountain. Now he's living in a cave. Actually going back into the ground, into the place of death, as a place to live. And then, I'm only going to talk, touch on this, but when you see Lot get drunk and the daughters go in and uncover his robe and sleep with him and get pregnant by him, that's the sin of Ham again, only worse. See, Noah got drunk, and that was okay, I would say. He drank enough to make himself sleepy, okay? And in the privacy of his tent, he uncovered his robe, and Ham had no business going in. Ham is the one at fault. Here, Lot, we see Lot drinking every night. So drunk, he doesn't even know what's going on. The daughters go in and they take the robe off and lie with him. And that is an attack upon his honor and power and authority. And the daughters were righteous enough to be delivered, but now they fall. Just as Ham was righteous enough to go through the flood, but then he falls. Just as Adam was created righteous and then he falls. So the daughters are righteous enough to go through the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and then they fall. And their descendants are the Moabites and the Ammonites, and according to Zephaniah chapter 2, they are simply an extension of Sodom and Gomorrah in history. They fail. Lot fails the temptation, and his daughters fail it too. Impatient, and what they earn is death and destruction and degeneration. Let's look very quickly then at Genesis chapter 23. In Genesis chapter 23, Sarah dies, and Abram decides that he'd better buy a cave 
to bury her in. Now the big temptation and the final temptation comes to Abram. The temptation not to wait, but to go ahead and get the land. And so the Hittites, <coughs> who are Canaanites, come. And even though these Hittites seem to be converted and seem to respect Abraham, still in this case, they place a temptation before him. In verse 4, Abraham says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Well, let's just read the whole chapter. I think that in two minutes we can do it. Verse 2, Sarah died in Kiriath Arbor, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Big stress here on the land of Canaan. Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, and Abraham went up from the dead and spoke to the Hittites, saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Emphasis on being a stranger and a sojourner. Sell me a burial site, that'd be a better translation, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham and saying, said to him, Hear us, my master. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abram rose and bowed to the people of the land. Emphasis that it's their land and he's a sojourner. And he spoke to them saying, if it's your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zophar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence. Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth. And he said, verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. In case you missed the point, he's giving it to them. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. It's their land, not his. He's a stranger and a sojourner in it. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people and saying, Please listen to me. I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. I know how rich you are and you know how rich I am. That's nothing. What's that between you and me? Take it. I'm giving it to you. Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he named in the hearing of the sons of Seth, for a hundred shekels of silver, commercial standard. In other words, they would accept it at Vanguard. So Ephron's field, which was at Machpelah, and the face Mamre, the field in the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field, little Garden of Eden here, that were within the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth. And after this, Abram buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing him. Mamre with his Hebron in the land of Canaan. Emphasis. Land of Canaan. Stranger in the land. Not your land yet. You wait. Now the temptation comes to Abram three times. First of all, we'll give you a one of our graves. In death you become one of us. Abram says, no. This, God is going to give me this whole land if I wait. So I'm not going to receive it from you. And I will not be buried with you and become part of you in death. I remain separate in death. Then the temptation comes a second time. Ephron says, I give you the field and the cave. And Abram has to say, no, I have to get this only from God. God has given me money and I will pay you money for it. The full price, I will not take any charity from you. I will take what God gives me and pay you for it, but I will not take a gift from you. And a third time, Ephron comes and says, Listen, I don't need your money. You can have it. And Abram insists on paying for it. What's the temptation? To take the land from someone other than God. It's kind of a subtle temptation. I mean, really, what difference does it make what grave you're buried in? And what difference does it make if Ephron wants to give you this land? Well, the difference is symbolic, but all important. That you get the land only from God. And you wait and wait and wait and wait. And it's drawing a fine line, but it's the line that's all the difference between getting it from God as his gift and taking it from the Canaanites as their gift. Oh, it's a great testimony to faith and to Abram's influence in the land that these people love him so much that they want to give it to him. And it is not the case that we have here some extended, subtle, Near Eastern negotiation procedure all recorded here just as some piece of local color. I think what's going on here is quite honest uh, and it's not to be interpreted in the light of Hittite information but in the light of the Bible itself. These people want to honor Abraham and give it to him but Abram says, I cannot take your honors. I must wait for God to honor me. That's the temptation that comes. 
We see here at the end in chapter 24, verse 1, that Abram was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. You can contrast Abraham with Adam. Adam was impatient. He grabbed for it and lost it all. Abraham was patient and waited for everything. And at the end, he got it all. And there's one thing we haven't had time to talk about, and I will only do it quickly because I don't want to have to come back to this next week. Abraham is called the friend of God in Scripture. And the king's friend is this privy counselor who's given all of his information. And when you see Abraham talking to God in Genesis 18, God comes to Abraham and says, I haven't withheld anything from Abraham. I've given him all the information. Abe, I'm thinking about destroying Sodom. What do you think? Abraham says, well, I'm not sure you want to do it if there are 50 people in it. Well, okay, not for 50, not for 45. What's going on there? The greatest honor that God can bestow upon a man to make man his privy counselor. That's what Adam would have had if he had been patient and waited for the robe of privilege and honor to be given to him. And here it's given to Abraham. Hushai the archite, we're told, was David's friend, the king's friend. That meant he had access to all the top secret documents. He was the number one counselor in the land. That's why Hushai goes over to Absalom and deceives him in the interest, and by the way, there's another deception of the serpent, uh, deceives him to preserve David's life. That's what the king's friend does. But when Abraham becomes king's friend, that means that God has given him the entire revelation, and all of us are now king's friends because we all have it all. That means God takes us in as his own personal counselors and asks us for our opinion and takes our opinion into consideration. That's what Adam could have had, but he was impatient. But that's what Abraham got because he was patient. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.